Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. I invite you to take a copy of uh, the scriptures and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 14. Our story continues to follow King Saul, the first king of Israel who was anointed by Samuel to become the king, the first king, and given the job of defending Israel from her enemies. So the the specific task of the king of Israel is to fight against the enemies of God's people. And so far, Saul's uh, record on that is mixed. Uh, When he was first anointed, he seemed hesitant, uh, to say it generously, uh, as when they selected him publicly to present him to the people he was hiding. And then in chapter 11, it seemed like it was going to get better. And so there was this threat of attack from the Ammonites, Nahash the Ammonite was coming up against them, and Saul, this says the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he mightily defended the people of Israel and defeated this foe, and the people celebrated and welcomed him as their king. Then chapter 12, immediately following that victory, Samuel led the people in covenant renewal. Let's renew ourselves and our commitment and our covenant with God to not just be obedient to our earthly king, but people and king obedient to Yahweh, the king of Israel. And so the people made this recommitment or covenant renewal in chapter 12. And the the stage seemed to be set for great things to come and for glory and for obedience and for blessing for God's people. And then we saw last week in chapter 13 uh, that Saul decides to cut some corners uh, under pressure from the Philistines who were pressing in on every side. He decided he didn't need to wait for Samuel, the prophet, to come and to deliver the specific word of God about what he should do. Uh, it was time to act, and so he offered sacrifices himself, and, uh, and lo and behold, just at that time, Samuel came, and he said, what have you done? And Saul had this list of excuses, remember, about all the things. Well, the Philistines could have marched at any moment, and my army was dwindling, and people were running away, and you weren't here yet, and so I decided uh, to go ahead and offer the sacrifice. And the result of that disobedience was that God told Saul through Samuel, your kingdom will end. In other words, there will not be... Uh, a, a dynasty of your family. Your sons will not reign on the throne. So he didn't like fire him from being king, but he told him, you're the last one in your family, right? So the kingdom is going to be removed from you. And so it's important for us to remember that detail that Saul's dynasty or the, the, the hope of him having a family line that would sit on the throne after him is has been removed because of his disobedience. And that will uh, become poignantly clear in chapter 14. 
There's a lot in chapter 14. It's a pretty long chapter. We are going to try, I'm going to try to get all the way through it, um, but we're not going to probably read every word of it. So follow along with me and we'll kind of tell the story and, and jump into certain points. And so I want, I want us to understand what's happening just story-wise, just as the narrative unfolds. But then there are some truths, some themes that emerge uh, that I want us to spend a little bit of time reflecting on as well. And so in terms of the story, we've seen their chapter 13 ended with Saul and his dwindling army down to about 600 men, it told us. Um, and the rest of the Israelites have gone and hidden themselves in caves and holes and tombs. And the Philistines are on the march. They've broken themselves up into three companies and they're basically surrounding the Israelites, and they're coming in. And that's how chapter 13 ends. So chapter 14 begins with Jonathan. We were introduced to him last week as the son of Saul. So Saul has a son, and Jonathan, in fact, was the one bright spot in chapter 13 because we saw at the very beginning of that chapter that he fought against and defeated a garrison of Philistines at Geba. That was back in verse 3 of chapter 13. And then, of course, Saul made everybody made sure everybody heard the news. Saul has defeated the Philistines, right? So he took credit for Jonathan's victory. But so we were introduced to Jonathan as this uh, at least effective, aggressive, uh, bold uh, warrior, the son of Saul. And we're going to see a lot more from Jonathan in the story today. So beginning in chapter 14... The first 15 verses of this chapter tell the story of Jonathan once again leading a successful and brave um, attack on a uh, Philistine garrison. So another small company of Philistine soldiers. But if you look at at these verses, you'll see that he didn't even bring an army with him. Let's look at the beginning of, of 14. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, so his armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Uh Uh-oh. We already can see there may be some drama here. So the king does not know that Jonathan is leading this two-man expedition toward the Philistine garrison. Let's continue. Verse 2. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gebeah in the pomegranate cave at Migran. So what is Saul doing? Is he valiantly leading a charge against the enemies of God? He's hiding in a cave. Just like many of his men had run off and hidden themselves in caves, it seems that Saul himself is now hiding in a cave as well. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh wearing an ephod. And you might think, why all those details about this guy? But if you look at that little list, a few names might ring a bell. So we learn that he's the son of Ahitub and the brother of Ichabod. Ichabod, remember, was the child born to the wife of Eli's son Phinehas. On the day Phinehas was killed in battle, And that same day that the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. And so when this 
child was born to the wife of Phineas, she named him Ichabod, which means there is no glory, or where is the glory? Because the glory of Israel in the presence of God through the Ark of the Covenant had been removed. And so this priest is in Eli's family. And Eli had been, we just saw Saul being rejected, his family being rejected from the kingship. And if you remember, Eli had the very same uh, uh, consequence because of his disobedient sons and his failure to rein them in. And so God had sent a prophet to Eli back in chapter two to say that the priesthood would be removed from him and that his family would not continue. And indeed, his two sons died in that battle on the same day. And then Eli himself died when he learned that the Ark of, God, the, Ark of the Covenant had been stolen. And so the guy that is the priest with Saul, Ahijah, is in Eli's family, basically the grandson of Eli. And so we have hiding in a cave, the rejected king and a rejected priest, both of representatives of the failed leadership of the people of God. And they're hiding together in a cave along with about 600 men. So back to Jonathan in verse 4. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, which basically means slippery, or it means shiny. So you would expect this, this, the surface of this rock to be wet. And the name of the other, Sene, which means like thorny. So you've got one side of this uh, valley where they have to go through that is slippery, and the other side, which is thorny. So not, a, not an easy passage, right? They, they've chosen a treacherous uh, pathway to follow. And yet he says, uh, in verse 5, the one crag rose on the north, the other rose on the front in, in Geba. Jonathan said to the young man, sorry, this is verse 6, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised which was not just a dig. It wasn't just insulting them. It was a recognition of the fact that the Philistines are not the covenant people of God because circumcision for the people of Israel was a mark of the covenant. We belong to God. We are his special people. We are the circumcised. And so the Philistines are not the covenant people of God. They're the uncircumcised. So just note that Jonathan is already thinking in terms of covenant. He's thinking in terms of God's people and not God's people and thus the enemies of God's people. Look at what he says in verse six. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. We will come back to that phrase later. And his armor bearer said, do all that is in your heart. He said, I'm with you, and off we go. And so Jonathan comes up with a little plan. He says, all right, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna hide behind a bush and then we're going to reveal ourselves to this, this camp of the Philistines. And if they invite us up, if they say, come on over, then we'll know that God has given them into our hand. I guess the alternative would be, if, the, if they're not going to invite them up, would be to chase them down and try to kill them. So once they make themselves plain and make themselves visible to the Philistines, if the Philistines start chasing them with weapons, okay, maybe we should run for our lives, right? Maybe we should hightail it out of there. But if they invite us up, then we'll know that God has given them into our hands, which 
seems like an interesting plan. At least it should come, become clear what might happen. So verse 11, both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. Thick with mockery and derision. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. Really means we will make you know something is the kind of literal language there. So come up here and let us teach you a lesson might have been the tone of it. So it doesn't sound like a warm and friendly invitation, but nevertheless, Jonathan receives it as an invitation. He said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And so that was good enough for him. That come up to us and let us teach you a lesson. All right, well, here we go. The Lord has given them into our hand. And so verse 13, Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan. That means he struck them down. And his armor bearer killed them after him. And that after that first strike, excuse me, and that first strike what Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. So they're in a small space, and Jonathan and his armor-bearer are able to strike down 20 guys, clearly by the strength of God, and not just because they were great warriors or athletes or something. And verse 15 tells us there came a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and it became a very great panic. The exact phrase that's translated very great panic is a panic from God. So Jonathan leads this daring escapade with his armor bearer into this garrison of Philistines, just these two guys, and they kill these 20 Philistines and as a result of that, the, the, the armies of the Philistines surrounding it begin to panic and be confused. God has put a panic, a confusion upon them. And we'll see how that unfolds in these next section of verses. And so the first thing we see here is that Jonathan is taking an initiative to fight against the enemies of God's people while Saul, the king, who was given this job, is hiding in a cave with the reject priest and 600 guys who don't have the guts to go do what God's called them to do. They're hiding in a cave. Jonathan is leading the way. And so he puts himself forward on behalf of the people of Israel and as a representative of God. He speaks of the covenant by calling the Philistines uncircumcised. He says, God has given them into our hands. So he recognizes God as the one, the strength behind this victory. And he said uh, that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So Jonathan then represents this faithful, courageous um, initiative where Saul is hiding away. So then what happens next is that the Philistine armies just basically defeat themselves. It, it, it just falls apart for them. And meanwhile, Saul kind of is scrambling to uh, figure out how he can get back into this battle or whether he's going to do uh, wh wh what he should do and maybe probably trying to reclaim some semblance of dignity or respect in the midst of it all. 
So looking in verse 16, when the watchman of Saul in Gebeah of Benjamin looked, behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. So there have been all these Philistine armies gathering, right, surrounding. And so now the watchmen of Saul are looking and suddenly there's all this movement and the people seem to be like running amok and running into each other and running away. And so Saul learns that this is going on. And so look at verse 17. He said to the people who were with him, counted, see who was gone from us. So he suspects something's happened here and I didn't know about it. Of course, we know who's responsible for it. And so Saul said, uh, so when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And so now Saul learns that Jonathan uh, has, is not among the people. And meanwhile, there's this confusion and panic among the Philistine armies. I wonder if those things are related. And so Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. Oh, no. This should remind us of chapter 4 where the people, the elders of Israel, were about to be destroyed by a surrounding enemy, the Philistines. And instead of turning to God for help and, and praying to him, they said, bring the ark. Go get the ark from Shiloh, and let's carry that into battle, and that way we'll get victory over our enemies. And so we, you see, again, this kind of good luck charm theology. Well, if we just do the right things or uh, check the right boxes that somehow will will have God's power behind us. And so Saul is doing the very same thing that they had done back in chapter 4 when the ark got captured. So probably not a good move. And so they bring the ark. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. And so Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. And so uh, the people were, who were with him rallied and went into the battle. So he's like, we don't have time for all of the rituals and prayers. We just need to get going, right? And so uh, now into battle they go. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow. That is Philistine against Philistine, fighting each other. And there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, who had gone up with them into the camp, which tells us that some of the Israelites, out of fear of the Philistines, had actually kind of gone, defected and gone to the Philistines and said, hey, can we fight with you guys? Like, we don't, we don't, we don't really want to be with Israel. So these are Israelites who have gone to the other side, as it were, and now they go, oh, look, the Philistines are losing. Cool, we'll go back to Israel and fight with them against the Philistines. They also turned aside uh, to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Verse 22, likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. And so the threat disperses, and the Philistines sort of defeat themselves. And the, that, uh, that ensuing attack, that siege, which seemed at the end of chapter 13 to be absolutely insurmountable. No way the people of Israel are getting out of this mess. is gone. The Lord saved Israel that day. Pretty remarkable. What happens in the rest of this chapter is very strange. And it, it, it kind of zooms in, a little bit of kind of backtracks. So when, verse 24 actually goes back in time just a little bit. 
to tell us what had happened at the beginning of the day of this battle before things had started going their way. Um, and, and then it kind of catches us up to the present time. And we continue here to watch Saul just kind of descend into chaos, into almost madness. Verse 24 says, The men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, which we knew, ending chapter 13. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So Saul places this really curse upon his people and says that it's a forced fast, right? You must fast if you eat any food until we have destroyed the enemies. And who has been avenged? I have been avenged. Maybe Saul's looking at the wrong person here, seeking the wrong reputation, the wrong glory. And so this army, who's hard-pressed and is in this very difficult place, we just read the description of this craggy, you know, slippery and thorny place where these armies are, um, and fighting, got to fight all day and got to defeat the enemies, but you can't eat. You can't eat anything. Try that. Go for a normal day without eating anything, and you get pretty famished. But these guys are like in battle and out in the wilderness and climbing and hiding in holes and all this kind of stuff, and you can't eat anything. That's not great for morale. I don't know if you've ever been in a group of people who is hungry, but it's not really that pleasant. So not a good thing. None of the people tasted food. And so now then there's this scene that unfolds as the people are, uh, are going into the forest. And at this point, Jonathan is with them. So, so Jonathan is back with the people. They're going through a forest, and they find some honey that's been dripping out of a honeycomb onto the ground. And, of course, the people are starved, and they want to eat the honey, but it says they do not dare for fear of Saul, right? So they knew that there had been this curse. The people feared the oath. But Jonathan, look at verse 27, Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. Why not? Because he was off doing Saul's job. He was fighting against the Philistines, and so he didn't hear that Saul had placed this curse upon the people if they were to eat food. And so Jonathan sees the honey, and he has a stick, and he dips it in the honey, and he eats the honey. And it says his eyes were brightened. And I think that just means he was strengthened. He took refreshment by eating. But the people... Verse 28, one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. I imagine that's the case. They were exhausted. They were depressed. They were hungry. And Jonathan said, listen to the wisdom of Jonathan in verse 29, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. And so at this point, it appears that the, the, the victory is at least in process, right? The Philistines have been confused and, 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 uh, and fighting against themselves. And so even now, they're not allowed to eat. And Jonathan has eaten and gotten griped at. Oh no, you're going to get yourself in trouble. And Jonathan recognizes my father has troubled the land. And we're reminded of the warnings of Samuel back in chapter 8. You say you want a king. Here's what he's going to be like. He's going to take from you. 
take your sons and take your daughters and take your land and take your crops, right? You'll be enslaved to him. And we start to see glimpses of that. Oh, yeah. We were warned about this, weren't we? This is what it would be like under the king. And so then we have this little quick description of verse 31, again, of the, the victory. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon. The people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoils. So check this out. They've destroyed the Philistines now, or at least chased them out of the camp or whatever. And they are so hungry that they find sheep and oxen and calves in the camp of the Philistines, and they slaughter and start eating. It says they eat it with the blood, which is a... Uh, violation of the commands in Leviticus, right? The laws of the people of God were that they had to drain blood from the animal before they, uh, before they cooked it and ate it. Uh, but these guys are so hungry and so out of their minds that when they see these animals, they just can't wait. So they're slaughtering and they're eating with the blood. It's this very kind of gruesome, uh, gross scene. And somebody goes and tells Saul, uh, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And Saul said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. And so, so Saul makes an altar. And he tells us it was the first altar that he built to the Lord. And he began, they began sacrificing the animals and draining the blood and doing this in the, the proper way, the way according to the law. But it's very interesting that Saul is suddenly very interested in the details of the law. How dare you eat the animals with the blood because that's displeasing to the Lord. Well, we have not seen a whole lot of interest on Saul's part in following his law or, or waiting for his word, right? And yet here we see him getting very interested in the, the details of the law. So then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. So the priest goes, maybe we should talk to God first. Maybe we should pray and see what he wants us to do. So Saul uh, goes along with that and he inquires of God. Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? So now again, Saul is now, all right, we're going to pray. We're going to talk to God. We're going to ask him for specific direction, for specific guidance. Oh, but look, wouldn't you know it? He did not answer him that day. Why wouldn't he answer Saul? Verse 38, Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people. Know and see how this sin has arisen today. So here's the assumption Saul makes. Since God's not answering me, one of you guys must have done something wrong. We got somebody in the company who's hiding sin, and we got to get it out in the open so we can deal with it, and then God will answer my prayer, right? So we have echoes of the sin of Achan back in the days of Joshua, where he had stolen some of what they had plundered and hidden it in his tent, and then they had to, like, cast lots and come down to Achan and find out, oh, look, you stole all this stuff. And so he was judged. Very similar situation here. So Saul says... Somebody is in sin, let's find out who it is. And he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side. I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. People said, do what seems good to you. That's what they say to him now. What else are they going to say to Saul? They've seen this guy's attitude. Whatever seems good, do it. Therefore Saul said, Lord God of Israel, 
Why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt, that is the guilt of whatever this hidden sin is, if this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thumim. So now this Urim and Thumim thing is like basically casting lots. And so the priest would carry these little stones around with him in the ephod, which I think is why the ephod was mentioned earlier. And they would basically cast stones as a way of, and they would trust that God would, would orchestrate the landing of the stones to answer specific questions. We don't know a whole lot about that practice beyond the fact that it, it happens a few times uh, throughout the Old Testament. And so they cast lots and find out, try to find out uh, what happens. And he, and he said, I should have pointed this out back in verse 39. He said, whoever it is, even if it's my own son, Jonathan, he's going to die. Whoever is guilty of the sin, he will die. doesn't matter who. So now he's casting lots. Lord, is it me and Jonathan or is it the people? And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. So then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And who do you think was taken? Jonathan. Well, what had Jonathan done? He ate the honey. He broke the rule, right? Saul made this curse. If anyone eats any food before I am avenged, then let him be accursed. And Jonathan ate the honey. So Saul says, what'd you do? Tell me what you've done. And so Jonathan says, look at verse, Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. <laughs> like, all right, if this is what it takes, if this is what it's down to, and Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. So Saul is going to go through with this. Saul is like, well, I said I was going to kill whoever did it. And you're the one who ate the honey after I placed this curse on the people. So psh, come on, Jonathan, let's get this over with. Saul is about to kill his own son over this stupid rule about not eating food until he was avenged. This is great leadership, not and so Jonathan's about to die. But look what the people do. Verse 45, the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went to their own place. Like, okay, I guess that's over. Nothing much to do now. And so they go back home. What a strange and twisted turn of events with Saul making this ridiculous ruling that they can't eat any food and Jonathan sort of accidentally being the one who ends up violating that rule. And now Saul is so enraged that somebody would break the rule that he's willing to kill him, even if it's his own son, and the people of Israel step in and say, no, not today. He's the one that did his job. <laughs> Actually, he did your job. He's the one that worked with God for this great salvation to come to Israel. And so they ransom Jonathan. And there's some boldness in standing against this kind of raging king to say, nope, you're not going to do that, right? Because it might be their heads. But at this point, they're willing. They're not going to stand by and watch Jonathan die for the stupidity and pride of Saul. So that's kind of the way that that story ends. 
And so I think there's, there's, there's a really interesting thing going on here uh, in this story that the, the narrator here in 1 Samuel is trying to, to do. And the most, uh, the most obvious thing is a contrast between Jonathan and his father Saul. So Saul, the one who's appointed, the one who's been anointed as king, chosen by God to be king, and who, who is hiding away and not doing his job. And then when things start to turn in the direction of Israel through no doing of his own, he starts to try to figure out how he can, you know, kind of put the pieces back into place and gain some kind of control. So it looks like a little bit like he did back in chapter 13. Saul has defeated the Philistines. Nobody thinks Saul defeated the Philistines. The people know full well who defeated the Philistines. And so... Um, there's this, this contrast, and there's a real tragic irony that comes out here because as you read through chapter 14, you go, man, Jonathan would make a great king. Jonathan trusts God. Jonathan is courageous. Jonathan is wise. He recognizes the foolishness of placing this burden upon the people. Jonathan is willing even to go along with the consequences, even no matter how ridiculous they are. Okay, well, here I am. I will die. But the people like are for him and, 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 and defend him, right? Jonathan would make a great king, but it's never to be because Saul's disobedience led to the rejection of his family from the kingdom. So you immediately after seeing the kingdom removed from Saul, you get this glimpse of what could have been, what might have been if Saul had not disobeyed and, and, and had the kingdom removed from him. And so there's this sad irony over this whole story as you get to know Jonathan and think, man, if only this could have turned out differently. If only Jonathan could have been the king. But I think the more important contrast is between the faith of Jonathan and the weird kind of religious obsession of Saul. Let me explain what I mean. Jonathan demonstrates what real faith looks like. I'm going to take you back to that phrase uh, early in the chapter, uh, in verse 6. So this is when Jonathan had the idea to take his armor bearer with him and go to this garrison of the Philistines. Um, And so he says to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So the first thing that Jonathan shows us about true faith is there, that he is confident in God's ability. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. If the Lord intends to save, he will do it. It doesn't matter by many or by few. It doesn't matter if he's got an army of 10 million or two guys. He will win if he intends to win. He will save if he intends to save. And so there is great confidence, unshakable confidence in God's power, in God's ability. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. And so true faith has confidence in God's ability. How confident are you in God's ability? How confident are you that God will accomplish his purposes in your life, in your home, in your community, in the world, for his kingdom? How confident are you if God sets his mind to save, nothing can hinder him? 
He demonstrates true faith in God by expectation and not in a presumptuous way, not in a way that sort of demands that God respond to his great faith, but, but he expects that God is able and he may act for us. It may be that the Lord will work for us. So there's this expectation. If I go into the camp of the Philistines, maybe God will show up. He doesn't sit around and wait for God to tell him whether he's going to give the Philistines to him, right? He comes up with this little idea, you know, this kind of like test. If they say, come up, then he's given them into our hands. But in order for that to happen, he had to first make himself visible to the Philistines, which is kind of already in, the, in harm's way, if you will. So he expects, in a sense, God to come through, God to work on his behalf. But that expectation is tempered by a confidence in God's sovereignty. That's another aspect of true faith in God. It, it recognizes the sovereign freedom of God because he doesn't say God will certainly act for us or God must work for us if we go. He says it may be <laughs> that the Lord will work for us. Perhaps God will work for us and that's good enough for Jonathan. It just might be the case that God will work on our behalf. I love what Dale Ralph Davis has to say about this. He says, many in our own day think that to say perhaps cuts the nerve of faith. That if faith is faith, it must always be certain, dogmatic, and absolutely positive. Faith, however, must not be confused with arrogance. Jonathan's perhaps is part of his faith. He both confesses the power of Yahweh and retains the freedom of Yahweh. Faith does not dictate to God as if the Lord of hosts is its errand boy. Faith recognizes its degree of ignorance and knows it has not read a transcript of the divine decrees for most situations. The divine decrees being that which God purposes to come about. And we don't know that stuff before it happens. So faith isn't, I know exactly how this is going to turn out. I've got confidence that God is going to do what I intend for him to do or want for him to do or whatever. That's not real faith either. Faith is, I'm willing to go out on a limb. I'm willing to take a bold step, a, a courageous move, because I'm very confident that nothing can hinder the Lord from doing what he intends to do. And he is free to do as he pleases. He may or may not do exactly what I want or exactly what I expect. So real faith is confident in God's ability and yet it leaves room for God to be God, for God to be free to do as he sees fit. And the final thing he shows us about true faith is that it leads to bold action. Because what's the first thing he said to his armor bearer? Come, let us Go, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. You see, true faith isn't just ticking boxes off a mental checklist. Faith is expressed in action. How does your faith in God affect your speech, your relationships, your decision-making, your use of time and resources? Do you trust that God is able to work 
in those situations and even through you to accomplish his purposes? And do you trust that his purposes are good, even if they don't match up with yours? So Jonathan gives us this shining example of true faith in God. Meanwhile, what we see from Saul is this religion, this impersonal religious obsession. So as things start to unravel in his mind, and as the victory starts to come, but it starts to come through somebody else, he gets more and more interested in the the trappings of the faith, not demonstrating actual faith in God, but in the, the surrounding things of the faith. Liam Gallagher says, the further away from God we get, the more focused some people become on the trivia that surrounds Christianity. The things that don't really matter, things that are not central to the word of God, suddenly just the aesthetics become more important or the externals become more important than the real thing. And so you see Saul kind of expressing that kind of thing. So in verse 18, he summons the Ark of the Covenant. Bring the Ark here, right? We need help. Let's get the Ark. He commands this goofy fast in verse 24. Until there's victory, until I've been avenged, nobody can eat. He's suddenly interested in the sacrificial laws. You can't eat the animals with the blood. Let's set up an altar. His first altar, it tells us, I think, not, uh, not unironically there. Uh, yeah, this is the first time he cared about that, right? He set up an altar to sacrifice his animals and do things the right way. Suddenly, in verse 37, he's praying to God for direction. We haven't seen him do that yet. He was supposed to wait for Samuel in chapter 13 for specific direction and got tired of waiting and did his own thing. And so now, all of a sudden, God, what should we do? Should I go down and fight the Philistines or not? Why does he care all of a sudden? He assumes that since God doesn't answer him, there must be some hidden sin among the people. And so he goes through this this lengthy process of figuring out who's to blame for God's silence. It's all very particular details of religion, but not bearing the heart of faith. He does not demonstrate that he knows Yahweh at all or that he has any real personal faith in God whatsoever. And yet here he is interested in the trappings of religion. I think that's an easy trap for people to fall into in our own day. For Christians in churches, or people who believe themselves to be Christians, because they go to church, they give a little bit of money, maybe they've read the Bible sometime in the past month, they try to be nice to their neighbor, whatever, right? So maybe there's some, some uh, boxes that we tick off about religious activities that we're performing. And we think, doing pretty good, right? I feel okay because I'm checking off these boxes. But meanwhile, you can go about all of the trappings of Christianity without ever really having faith in God at all, without knowing him whatsoever. It's possible to be faithfully involved in church life and not know Jesus. That's tragic, it's dangerous, but it's true. So then there's this inevitable showdown where the people end up opposing their king. So this contrast between Jonathan's faith and Saul's sort of impersonal religious obsession sort of come into conflict with one another and ends up, Saul's 
religious obsession is about to end Jonathan's life, but the people won't let that happen. And so the last few verses of chapter 14 are really a little bit surprising in light of everything that's come before it. Um, the, the structure of the book of Samuel uh, is that there's a, there's a few kind of key divisions, and each of those divisions has a summary section, a few verses that sort of say, here's kind of what went on in this period. The first of those was back at the end of chapter 7. Uh, and so the first seven chapters of First Samuel are really kind of Samuel's story of coming into his ministry and his role as prophet. And so the last few verses in chapter 7 summarize the ministry of Samuel, even though he's not over yet. But it kind of talked about how he judged the people all his days and all that kind of faithfully represented God, right? And we have another one of those summary sections at the end of chapter 14, because chapter 15 is going to start to turn. Saul is still very much involved in the story, but it really becomes David's story. And we'll look, we'll, we'll be introduced to him uh, two Sundays from now. Um, but the, the theme and the focus of the story begins to change. And so in the last few verses of chapter 14, beginning of verse 47, we have a summary of Saul's days as king. And it is surprisingly positive. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. He did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered him. Now the sons of Saul, and then we have this little, uh, you know, family tree. The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, the name of the younger, Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimeaz, cool names. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any strong man or valiant man, he attached him to himself. So Saul's building his army all the while because he finds a strong guy and goes, all right, you're going to be one of my right-hand men, right? And so we have this little summary that's like, Saul fought against all the enemies of God's people, and he was valiant, and he was victorious, and here's how he was succeeded in all this by, the, by his family. And it's very interesting to think on how uh, positively Saul's time as king is seen, at least historically speaking, right? If you look through a certain lens, it looks like Saul's kingship was pretty successful. To quote Dale Ralph Davis one more time, he says, the vital assessment cannot come from the applause of men within history, but only from the God who reigns over history. What matters then is not success, but covenant. Yahweh is not looking for winners but for disciples. Saul has begun to fail at the point of the covenant in that he did not submit to the covenant of God. And for the Bible, covenant obedience matters far more than vocational achievement. So even though you could say about Saul, yeah, he defeated a lot of enemies and like led Israel into prosperity and, you know, and power. When you look through the lens of covenant faithfulness and belief in God and personal integrity, and leading the people to worship Yahweh. He's no success at all. He's, in fact, a tragic uh, failure. And there are lessons to learn from Saul's life of warning. <laughs> like, let's not do what Saul does. Let's not err in the way that Saul errs. And so it's very interesting to look from the lens of history instead of the lens of covenant, where 
what God is after. I love that, what I just read to you from Davis. Yahweh's not looking for winners, but for disciples. He just wants people that are going to follow him. They're going to give their hearts and their lives to him. And Jonathan, standing in for the people of God and leading the way against the enemies of God, of course, provides us a, a reminder of the Lord Jesus himself, who placed himself into harm's way in a greater way than we could ever imagine or face. Because he trusted his father. First Peter tells us that he did not, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He uttered no threats, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He trusted God the Father, and he was willing to walk into harm's way, to take on the enemies of God's people. And the enemies of God's people today are not Philistines or Amalekites or Russians or Germans or any of those. The enemies of God's people are Satan and sin and death. And Jesus took them on at the cross, and he crushed them. And he rose, and new life and eternal hope and relationship with God are available through simple faith in him because of what he accomplished for us. And so in the same way that Jonathan has this personal faith in God, recognizing his ability and power and sovereignty, and it leads him to bold action, we can place our trust into the Lord Jesus, recognizing that he, he conquered all of our enemies for us. And all we got to do is place our lives and eternity on him and his accomplished work. Let's pray.